All right, let's get started. I uh, welcome to. I don't know. I should have like the what Wednesday night this is uh, of the year, but it's uh, this Wednesday night. So tonight we are in uh, the end of two and the first part of three. Um, the next week we're going to go through the end of the rest of three. So if you're keeping score at home, if you uh, miss the questions, they are uh, there's half sheets that you can pick up out back. What I should do is. Um, Throw these in the old comments section on the live video. That'd make a good. That would make sense. Next time, I'll throw them in the uh, in the on the live stream, so those of you at home can uh, ask yourself questions. Oh, we should probably pray first. I was just waiting for the Kwame so we could pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you tonight, and we are grateful to be again together and able to open your word and to dig into this text that is um, simply complex. And so we just ask for the guidance of your spirit to uh, teach us as we engage with um, John's letter and as we engage with each other. And we just pray that we would continue to remain open and supple vessels that we desire to grow in our understanding of you and our commitment to you and our relationship with you. So be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So I have to say, um, the brilliant J.B. Weld example last week, I had my truck in to get uh, fixed, and Jeff, in fact, used some J.B. Weld on my truck. So now my truck is biblical in all sorts of ways. So, J.B. Weld's powerful stuff. Um, all right, so we are in, like I said, uh, we are in the end of two, the beginning of three. Some commentators say that uh, John's first letter is ended at, the, at verse 27, and this is either an addition, um, a giant P.S., or it could be somebody else writing. I am still going with this as John's, um, John's words, but it's going to sound very familiar. Uh, and now, uh, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we have will be, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All that we and he and sea is a little bit like seashells by the seashore. So uh, we get this and now. Obviously, it's a big, um, I don't know what you would call it other than a big conjunction. Um, in some sense, it's so basically everything that we've already said because of that, now this. Um, and you're going to say, well, if because of what we just said, Now this is the same thing that you just said. Why are you making this big deal out of it? 
it's um, to get us back up to speed. Again, he uses this word, this phrase, little children, as a term of endearment to these people. And then he uses this phrase, abide in him. So who is he abiding, who are we abiding in? Um, obviously, it is Jesus. And this word is uh, one that John uses uh, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in his letter. And it's very important that we grasp what this word means, to abide or to abide in him. It's not a word that we use on a very regular basis, certainly in our um, vernacular. But it's this um, sense of remain, or I like to think about uh, marinate, or uh, brine oneself, soak oneself uh, in Christ, or cleave to Christ. I like to think of it this way, or I thought of it this way, um, and I'm going to go with it. It's, it's like uh, getting into the swimming pool, and then you just kind of hang out in the swimming pool until you are um, all wrinkly like when you were a kid. Next time you're sitting in a hot tub, maybe you could say to your friends, let's just abide here a little bit longer. And watch the people that don't know you get out like, wow, that person's really weird. Um, so it's this concept of remaining in, and we're going to uh, continue with that metaphor a little bit later. Why are we to do this? Why are we to remain uh, in Christ? Because John says, so that when he appears, uh, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So if you remember last week, we talked about this concept of the last hour. Now John is talking about the return of Jesus Christ, that when he comes back, which he is going to come back, it's this affirmation of who Jesus is, and that he's going to be coming back, and that when he does come back, we will have this sense of confidence. Now, it can be a kind of an interesting phrase. I think of it a little bit like this um, in a number of ways. Uh, gentlemen, think of it this way. Um, let's say your wife's been gone for a few days or a weekend or an extended period of time, and she says, I'll be back on Sunday night at 5 o'clock. At about 4.30, you don't have a lot of confidence in her return because of the status of the house. And so then you start to panic because you're not confident that she will feel good about the status of the house upon her return. So you start like scurrying around or heaven forbid she shows up early and you're like, ah! <laughs> I, was, I promise I was going to do these dishes. I was going to vacuum. I was going to pick up all the things by the front door. We don't have much confidence and John wants us to have confidence. Or think about it this way. We all know this experience, and I get to throw my friend Paul under the bus slightly. You know that feeling when you're driving and you see a police officer, and you immediately are like, oh, am I going too fast? Do I have my seatbelt on? Did I just signal? Did I do this? Did I do this? How are my tabs? Do I have insurance? Right? So you're like, okay, that makes more sense. I don't always have the most confidence that, I, that what I'm doing is legal. Don't you love that? People are like, oh, you're a police officer. Oh, like, 
as if they're doing something illegal. Yeah, <laughs> the hand of the law is coming down upon you. John wants these people to have confidence when Jesus returns whenever he returns. And how are they going to have this confidence? They're going to have it by abiding in Christ. And so he's saying if we abide in Christ, when he appears, there will be no shame, there will be no fear, there will just be confidence that he is going to welcome us into his presence. And part of that deals with their behavior. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And we get into this concept again of, if you are born of Christ, what you do is righteousness, and if you are not born of Christ, then what you do is not righteous. And we're going to try and flesh that out a little bit more later. Part of what John is doing, remember, is these tests to see where people are at in their relationship uh, with Christ. And then he gives us this image of our relationship to the Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now it's interesting because he's been referring to them as little children throughout uh, the book, or uh, throughout the letter, and now he says, and you are also children of God in this familial relationship. I had five pieces of bacon for dinner, and I'm a little thirsty. It was delicious. <clears throat> so, this idea of being children of God. Well, if we remember back in um, John's Gospel, and uh, the story of Nicodemus, chapter 3, and Jesus says to Nicodemus that you must be born again or born into a new family. John picks up on that theme here and says that we are children of God or that God is our Father. And what he wants to do is reassure his readers and us, because we're reading it, of the familial benefits that come with being a child of God. And so it made me think back to when uh, my dad was uh, working at KYNT. Have I told this story about calling in in the morning? So my dad was the manager of KYNT, Yankton's home team, AM 1450. It's where Tom Brokaw got his start in radio broadcasting. For all you trivia buffs out there, Russ and I had an interesting text thread about Tom Brokaw in his hometown. But anyways... So you would be able to win these prizes if you called in and answered the right question or were the certain uh, number caller, except I couldn't win them because I was the son of the manager. So I would often call in on behalf of my friends. And then I would have to tell my friends at school, oh, hey, by the way, you just won tickets to the movie theater. <laughs> what? Yeah, I couldn't win them, but I wanted to win them for somebody else, and so I won them to you. Because one of the perks was my dad would get these free tickets, and so we could go to the movies, or we'd always go to Worlds of Fun and Oceans of Fun and to the Royals games, because that was a perk of being a son of my dad. 
So what John is trying to say is we have these amazing benefits of being a child of God. And he wants to reassure these readers and listeners that we have this loving Father that extends us these amazing benefits. And that is in contrast to where the world is at. He says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Again, we're seeing this contrast between the world, the world system, and God. The world rejected Jesus. The world will reject followers of Jesus. The world does not accept us because they did not accept him. And when we are a part of the family of God, meaning followers of Jesus Christ, with these benefits, they're also part of the benefits. There is some stipulations that come with being a child of God, and one of those stipulations is rejection by the world. And where we get into trouble, right, is when we try to straddle both sides, and we want to be a, a child of God, and we want to be able to participate in the things of this world, and John is saying we can't do that. And he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And that is the essence of what we call transformation. There's you know, justification, transformation, uh, glorification or sanctification, depending on how you want to refer to it as. Sanctification is this process that we are on. He's saying we are not done. We are not finished products. We will not be finished products until Jesus returns. And we see him as he actually is, which is fascinating. Because even John, who said back at the very beginning, like, I saw this guy, but I didn't get to see him in his fullness and we will get to see him in his fullness at his return. And it's just this most exciting thing ever. And we can have these perceptions or conceptions of what it will be like when Jesus returns. And yet what we think it will be pales in comparison to what it will actually be. And so what should we do about that? He says, everyone who thus hopes in him, hopes in his return goes through this process of purifying himself or herself as he is pure. Meaning, making preparations for the return of Christ through the purification of oneself. Ned and I went out for lunch yesterday for his birthday, and he asked me uh, if we would be wearing masks at Christmas, and I said, I don't know, um, but he was concerned because when you get dressed up, for Christmas, are you going to have a mask that matches your outfit because you want to look good on Christmas, especially? And I asked him this question, why do we take showers and get dressed up for church? Have you ever thought that? Like, what's the big deal? Well, part of it lies in this theology of cleaning oneself up to make oneself presentable for the return of Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, he's going to get into that. Verse 4. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who loves does not love his brother. This is where it is uh, simply complex. <laughs> the, the, the letter, the first epistle of John, is one of the most simple and complex pieces of literature because of statements like this. He says, you know that he has appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And we're like, yes, okay, I got that. So simple. Jesus was perfect. Jesus did not sin. I'm totally on board. I can pass the Christological test. We're good. And then he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And we're like, Whoa, what? What? Okay, let's back this thing up. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. But I thought John had just said earlier that if you say you do not sin, you are a liar. But now he's saying if you abide in Christ, you won't keep sinning. And there's all of this ink that's spilt over what exactly does John mean by this simple phrase of keeps on sinning. And, and part of it is understanding what do we mean by the word sin? And you're like, didn't we cover that like in Sunday school and like kindergarten? I'm sure we covered it at VBS. Sin is anything that is not righteousness. So, remember last week we talked about we are either for Christ or we are anti-Christ. We were kind of twinged a little bit at that word. So how do we wrestle with this concept of no one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. Certainly, John doesn't mean what he's saying. Or does he mean what he's saying? Part of it is the theological or hermeneutical gymnastics that go around this is the first thought is, well, what he means is, you don't do, like, really bad sins. <laughs> right? Like, 
the category, there's like two categories of sins. There's like the really bad sins, and then there's like the everyday sins. And when you abide in Christ, you don't do like the really bad sins. You just do like the everyday sins. So that's what John means. Whew. No. Because God doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, these are like the really bad sins, and then these are like the sort of bad sins, and then these are like the okay sins. That's an oxymoron. That's no, no such thing. Then there's the, the argument that, well, what he, maybe what he means is the perpetuation of her habitual sin. So when I come to Christ, I have these sins that I do on a very regular basis. And when I come to Christ, then I stop doing those habitual sins. I certainly continue to sin, but it's not the habitual sins, so therefore I'm better off than I was before. Now he clearly says, like, you're not going to sin. So that doesn't necessarily work. So could... Could it be that John is setting us up for a standard that we cannot achieve? Because I thought the whole idea behind this letter was to encourage us and assure us of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That is true. Is it possible that John is setting a bar so high not to make us think we'll never get there, but to think, wow, that's way up there. Let's give it a shot. And the challenge that we face, and we've talked about this in a variety of settings, is when we focus on the sin in our lives, we take our focus off of Christ. And what we don't want to do is focus on the Okay, is there a sin there? Is there a sin there? Got that sin, this sin, this sin. And then we get into this idea of sin management, which we've talked about before. That's not what John is trying to say. What John is trying to drive home in this section is the encouragement of what does it look like when we are fully abiding in Christ. When we are fully abiding in Christ, sin leaves our realm of possibility, or our desired actions. It's like this, the swimming analogy. If you say, Eric, I would love to go swimming, I just don't want to get wet. That doesn't work. And some wise person is saying, it does if you wear a dry suit. Okay, so funny, ha ha. When we are abiding in Christ, we are immersed in his presence, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we are drawn so focused in on the place where we're at in worshiping him and being united with him that the sin that exists in our lives becomes an afterthought or non-existent. The challenge becomes, can I, this side of heaven, ever be fully immersed, fully abiding in Christ? That is the question that we wrestle with. 
Because we have this thing called the human nature in us that is constantly pulling us away from our abiding nature in Christ. And so what John is saying is, when we abide in Christ fully, then everything else moves by the wayside. Because when we think about sin... Sin at its core is 100% selfish. There isn't really a thing that exists that is unselfish sin. And so when I am fully focused on the other, Jesus, I'm not focused on myself. And if I'm not focused on myself, the sins that exist in my life become secondary or non-existent. Because we definitely want to abide in Christ. Because the alternative, well, we're going to get to it here in a second. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Seen him or known him. These are two key phrases that I think all of us can relate to. This concept of being seen is so important. Because when we live our lives, when we feel like we aren't being seen by people, it's, it's not a good feeling. Or if no one truly knows who we are. So to say that differently, if we truly see who Jesus is, and if I truly know who Jesus is, then I want to do everything that I can to please him and to honor him with my life. And again, we've talked about this before, the, the uh, parental challenge that I constantly face, the I know, I know, I know. I, yeah, yeah, I know, I'm supposed to do that. Then why aren't you doing it? So if we know Christ and we're being disobedient to Christ, that makes it all the more worse. And John has this, he has this optimistic belief that if we truly see who Christ is and we truly come to know who he is, then we won't be drawn over into this life of sin or sinning at all. He says, little children... Let no one deceive you. As if we've forgotten, this book is being written to a people that are constantly bombarded with uh, these deceptions, these different groups that are trying to pull them away. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And, And in great John fashion, the you know, I think in John's coloring book or color box of colors, it was two colors. There was black and there was white and there was nothing in between. It's like you're either righteous or you're Satan. That's my paraphrase. What he actually says is whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. <laughs> For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So he sets up this amazing contrast. There's righteousness 
and there's Satan. Let's pick teams. What he's trying to say is, when you look at an individual who is practicing righteousness, practicing the things of Christ, that person is committed to Christ. When you look at an individual, might be someone in the mirror, who is living in sin or constantly practicing sin, they are from the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So just to be clear, Jesus Christ came to destroy this sinful behavior and the sinful pattern which is of the devil and to establish his kingdom, this thing called righteous living. And those are the two options. We have righteousness and we have Satan. We have the kingdom of God and we have the world. We're like, there's got to be another option somewhere in the middle. Part of what I think John is trying to do is give us such clear, hard lines that, that there's no confusion. Because he circles back and he says, no one born of God, or to say, no one who is a child of God, no one who is a part of the family of God, a true son or daughter of God, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So he's talking about this idea of abiding in Christ and not sinning. And then he says, if we are true children of God, we will not continue to sin in the way that we have been sinning because we have been re born, regenerated into this new life. So then we think about, well, I mean, let's be honest. I keep sinning. Like, I keep sinning. Brent asked at lunch, all right, so who has sinned today? And I was like, me. (laughs) Well, how do you know? Well, because I know that I've certainly had thoughts, negative thoughts, about other people that I would never say those things to their face, but I know they're not righteous. So I know that I participated in something of the devil. (laughs) I mean, even to say that is weird because we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to Like, just give me the grace. And that's why, you know, when we talk about the the cost of discipleship and and people like, why do you want me to read this book? It's so hard. (laughs) Because he just doesn't mince his words. The fact of the matter is, I continue to sin. 
So does that mean that I am of the devil? I sure hope not. (laughs) It's a little bit like this. With the swimming pool analogy. If the swimming pool is abiding in Christ, and I want to get dry, I have to get out of the pool. So if abiding in Christ is not sinning, and an opportunity arises where I really want to sin, then what I have to do is say, Jesus, you stay here, because I got something that I'd rather do than hang out with you. And it's over here. I mean, you, you ever think about this idea of when we would tell our, our, our teenage selves, leave room for the Holy Spirit. That was no joke. Because <laughs> if Jesus was sitting shotgun on your teenage date, you'd be doing different things. Can I get an Amen. What John is trying to communicate is when we are abiding in Christ, truly present, and we desire to go and sin, or we do go commit a sin, we have abandoned that place of abiding because the two cannot coexist. Then he says the seed... God's seed abides in him. And again, we get this analogy. That's why understanding the gospel of John is so important to understanding this, these letters of John because he uses such similar themes that come up again and again. You know, when, when he says in the gospel, I am the vine and you are the branches, this remaining in Christ, being grafted into Christ, is how we bear fruit. In the same way, in the gospel, or in the, this letter, he says, the seed of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is planted in us, and through that miraculous event, we are able to bear fruit. You, you don't plant a tomato and end up with a zucchini. Because the seed of a tomato produces tomatoes, the seed of God produces righteousness. But the funny thing is, oftentimes we plant the seeds and then we walk away because gardening is not planting. Planting is far different. And then we hire people like Nikki to come do the gardening for us. We can't do that with our spiritual life. The seed of God is in us, and what happens is it grows and it develops and it bears fruit. And that fruit is not sin. That fruit is righteousness. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wait. That was a, like hard left-hand turn. You went from like these ambiguous phrases to something so specific. Did I mention that I had five pieces of extra salty bacon from McDonald's meats and it was delicious and now I'm very thirsty? Apple cinnamon bacon. Mmm. 
You know, when you're near Clearwater, you just pull in, you just buy the bacon, stock up. That's not very Lakes Proud. Sorry, David. No apple cinnamon bacon at Cub. I can't see if you're laughing, crying, sneering, sticking your tongue out at me. (laughs) Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What becomes very interesting in this is we can very easily slap on the the fruit inspector badge. We read a passage like this, and then we become the fruit inspector. And we, we say, well, John has given me, this John has given me a clear vision of how do I distinguish who is of Satan and who is a true follower of Jesus Christ. And if we, if we do that, we completely miss out on what John is trying to communicate. John isn't trying to give us a rubric for going around and evaluating people in our lives are like Satan, Satan, probably God, definitely Satan. Like, that's not the point. The point is to say we are known by the lives that we live and the fruit that we bear. And when we look around our lives, we can examine, is what I am producing in my life of God? Is what I am producing in my relationships of Christ? Are the thought processes that I'm having about myself or other people, would I say that they are pro-Christ, righteous, or would I say that they are antichrist and of the devil? And I understand this is, this is not how we usually talk, especially about sin. But I have to believe if, again, if we looked, if we looked at the decisions that we make in our lives and we truly saw the source I think we would make different decisions. You know, as I go into, into an experience, I mean, why is the, the little figurines on your shoulders such a great picture? Because if I see this action as from the devil, I'm far less likely to do it than if I see it as this clearly is of Christ and that's what I want to do. And what John wants to encourage us in is not to get us bogged down into, okay, where's the sin? Got to get the sin out of here, get the sin out of here, get the sin out of here. He wants to assure us of our place in the family of God. That's why he says we are children of God and how amazing that is. And as we walk through this thing called transformation, as John was talking about on Sunday, more and more towards Christ, our lives, our lives are changing, our actions are changing, our thought processes are changing because the Holy Spirit is doing a work in us. 
And John wants to encourage us along this path. And, and as, we, as we go through this thing called life, oftentimes we look up at the mountain and we're like, oh my word, it is so far. <sighs> and then we look behind us and we're like, wow, we have come a long ways. So we can either see it as this grand encouragement of, wow, look at what is happening. Look what God is doing in my life. Or we can say, this, this charge that John is placing in my life, pff, there is no way I could ever accomplish this. To which the answer is yes, you're correct. Because if we could accomplish rooting sin out in our lives, we wouldn't need Christ. But as we talked about last week, when we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, the J.B. Weld in our lives, that's when we can see progress. And it's not because of what I'm doing, it's what God is doing in and through me. And I think far too often, as I was talking to you, my dear friend, uh, when we were down in Missouri, and he's from Texas, and I just looked at him and I said, to quote the great Herm Edwards, you play to win the game. He was like, what? I'm like, you're playing not to lose. You're playing like the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl. <laughs> or in like three of their games this year, except for against the Vikings. How'd that turn out? I don't have TV. Oh, yeah, that's right. Domination. That was of Christ. That was not of the devil. I checked. This life with Christ is playing to win. And when we focus on the sin in our lives in such a crippling way, what we're doing is we're playing not to lose. So as we approach the day, we can think, Lord, please help me to not sin today. Or we can say, Holy Spirit, may I abide in Christ more and more today and focus on you throughout the whole day. That is playing to win the game. And that is what John is trying to encourage us with. Not to get bogged down in this impossible feet to try and rid sin from our lives. That is a natural consequence of abiding more and more in Jesus Christ. And that is encouraging. I heard last week was a great, some great pickleball. So congratulations, gentlemen. The ladies happen to say, that's just how we do discussion. Like, good for you. Good for you. We're different. So go to your groups and volley and serve the conversation back and forth. 